I realized it was not useful for us to continue to move the goalposts with respect to AI, and that by reserving the word thinking for like certain cognitive tasks and then saying that something else that a computer got good at was no longer thinking, it makes it hard for us to realistically view them as tools. There really is cognition there. It's not something that's alive, but it is a frozen mental state reflective of a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. It really does know what words mean, and it possibly in a deeper sense than we do. Hi, I'm Rachel Chalmers, and this is Generation Ship, the podcast at the intersection of infrastructure and artificial intelligence. We are the generation that's exploring generative AI. We are a finite group of people with a finite set of resources, and we have to share this infrastructure. We have to find fair and ethical ways to do that. The first generation ship has already set sail. It's the planet Earth, and you and I are the crew. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Mark Wallace to the show. Mark is a chief software architect currently at games company Global Worldwide, a technology innovator and a team leader with a deep foundation in physics and applied math. He's expert at architecting and operationally managing cloud application infrastructure at WebScale. And he's a hands-on architect, code, mentor, review designs, and review pull requests throughout the entire product system, including servers, infrastructure as code, mobile clients, data science, and machine learning. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you. I'm uh, really looking forward to our conversation. This is a, a great array of topics. We are also welcoming podcast dog Wiley, the guide dog in training. So if you hear some jingling, it's just his collar. Mark, you take a different philosophical stance from a lot of my guests. You believe these large language models are actually thinking, whatever thinking means. Can you say more yeah. about that? Yeah. You know, it was around the beginning of, of, of this year. I realized it was not useful for us to continue to move the goalposts with respect to AI. And that uh, by reserving the word thinking for like certain cognitive tasks and then saying that something else that a computer got good at was no longer thinking, it was just... It, it makes it hard for us to realistically view them as tools. And you have to be realistic because you have to look, in order to see their weaknesses, you have to acknowledge their strengths. Yeah. So saying they're not thinking is just, uh, it's, it's, I feel it, it's running away from them because, in fact, they are doing really sophisticated cognitive tasks that at any other era in history would, of course, have been thinking. Yeah, and they've blown away the Turing test, which was our milestone for so many years. As a woman in computing, I'm accustomed to moving goalposts, but this is a little ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so... Now, philosophically, I'm also aligned with the answer I just gave, that uh, I believe that there there really is cognition there. Uh, now, it, it might be a frozen mental state. It's not something that's alive. But it is a frozen mental state reflective of a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. And it's incredibly error-prone, as any early technology is. I guess... The only place I don't fully go with you on that is they don't sense. They don't have a connection to the world. It's true. They live entirely in a world of words. So the way I think about them, it's it's almost like the, the Disney thing, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's, right. like, it's like the magic book actually came alive and the books all started talking to you. And its personality is representative of, of a verbal corpus. So they live entirely in the world of words and they don't live, in t they, they don't live at all. But they 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 don't exist even in time. Right. So it's just a snapshot yeah. of a of, of an idea that could occur from the 
corpus of words. But it is, and I always go back to Jaron Lanier's article in The New Yorker, it is a library that can actually interact with you and talk to you and get a lot of things wrong, but it can hold up its end of a conversation. It can pass the Turing test. Right, and uh, you know, beyond holding up the end of a conversation, you can confront it with a difficult cognitive task that you would you know, confront a colleague with, and in a lot of cases, it'll do quite well. And of course, the corpus of knowledge available to it is like so much greater than a person could ever have in their immediate recall that it's compellingly useful just for that alone. You know, but uh, but the fact that its ability at cognitive tasks is, in a lot of cases, comparable to what people can do with words is good. Now, it lives in a way simpler world uh, than, than we do. I mean, when I say it, I'm just talking about LLMs in general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways, an earthworm has a tougher job than an LLM. Right. And, and, and the idea that we would, you know, I mean, this is where I'm going to throw a bias in. The idea that we would throw in a task that involves, you know, uh, negotiation and safety and things like that and somehow delegate those to an AIs is a little silly because, like, you know, everything that's alive has graduated from the school of hard knocks yes. over many generations by definition. So, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't trust my personal safety with an AI, but that doesn't mean I can't have a, a really nice conversation with it, like if, if I was reading a book. I think, to me, it rhymes a lot with a lot of the child dev I read when I was raising my kids. You know, babies are also in a very simple world and live in a world of of constant input and are trying to make sense of it and and grow and change very rapidly. But we don't expect a baby to grow in isolation and, and develop judgment and nuance without a community around it. I worry that we regard artificial intelligence, whatever it is, as if it could raise itself and we don't take on ourselves the responsibility of making sure that it observes our societal norms and, and values what we value. I agree. I've uh, obviously worked, I've worked really closely with AI for many years as, you know, because it's always been important in the game industry and other industries that I've been in. And as an architect, it's just a technology you always stay on top of. But in particularly lately, I've been an advisor to a company called uh, named Bamboo AI. And uh, they're working on a, a, a really, com well, an AI companion called Willow, which is a really charming personality. But in the process of doing that, I've learned uh, quite a bit about uh, fine-tuning and, and, and what, it, what it means and what it can mean. So I think uh, where I'm going with this, I'm trying to answer at least one question <laughs> that you put out there, <laughs> is that we're going through this engineering process of trying to train these things and form them. And the base models is just a beginning. The fine-tuning yeah. is just, just an enormous project that is still ahead of a lot of people. But they don't grow by themselves. And the thing is, it's really difficult for us to realize that, like, you know, any animal, anything with a little bit of cognitive skill, an insect that we encounter in real life, is highly adaptive and grows and changes. And these things don't. They only change when we change them. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we have a technology to surmount that yet. I can, there's a lot of tricks we can play to make them appear to grow. And that does make them more useful to us. Yeah, much to unpack there. We'll, we'll come back to that <laughs> piece by piece. Mark, you're already way ahead of most people I know in incorporating Gen AI in particular into your day-to-day -day work uh, in, in game infrastructure. Can you talk about some of the things you're using ChatGPT for? Uh, yeah, so uh, I manage a group of uh, SREs for keeping the, the game up and going. 
uh, Global Worldwide uh, is uh, the, the the game studio, and the name of the the game that is currently like live, but also constantly in development, like games are, is uh, Kingdom Maker. So uh, I am sort of the original technical architect of that game, along with the, some other good friends that that worked on it. But in addition to that, now I'm, I'm managing the SRE group. You know, and I've, I've managed SRE groups before. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily an SRE, but uh, it is striking how useful a tool it is in, in that particular context. Because uh, SRE type of work is really information-intensive and really cognitively intensive without uh, usually a very clear path ahead of you. The way, you know, if you're doing development work, you know, there's a there's a mental discipline and a path ahead of you. And uh, often in SRE stuff, like, there is a professional discipline of like keep the system up and don't take risks, <laughs> but uh, but the cognitive solutions for that aren't are real obvious. So ChatGPT has actually been really helpful with stuff like that. I can have a sophisticated architectural discussion with it about something that I both need to do research on, but also need to just sort of check my analysis and make sure that the line of reasoning is going. And also, I can sort of fish and see if it's got some line of reasoning that's that's, uh, that might be better. So what does a prompt look like? Sites down, here are some of the symptoms, what might be causing this? Yeah, I, I usually start with prompts that are very rich uh, and that I, I really try to make myself clear in words from the very first thing I say and then provide uh, illustrations usually in the form of code or specifications. So technically, I guess what that's doing is it's really refining the attention window so that you're picking a piece of the vector space that's super Exactly. I yeah. figured my, my first my first interaction with it is my best chance to find this, the right nodes. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, all this little this little hypersurface of like gradient descent that we're going to do. That's 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 where so for instance, uh, you know, a prout might, you know, for instance, the, today I was talking with it about um that I was considering switching some of our Redis code, some of our database code from using an older feature in Redis called PubSub to a newer one called Streams. And that would be a pretty big undertaking. It's a lot of time for the development team. So I was just trying to sort of explore the pros and cons of that versus some other things that I could do to enhance the reliability of the stuff with PubSub. So I, I started by giving it a, base, a paragraph on that, and then I followed up with, and by the way, for some context, here's the, the YAML specification of uh, some of my proxy codes that you know, interacts with Redis. So I, I threw in an, an HA proxy <laughs> configuration. Uh, and that's really pretty challenging. That's the way I would interact with a colleague who was really experienced and and already knew me and was sort of like ready to like just dive in. This is what fascinates me when you talk about these interactions. It's almost like you're talking about it as a peer programmer. Uh, yes, I, I I do work with it as a peer programmer, but it's a it's it's pair architecture. Yep. Now, w- one of the things is that uh, I've tried to convince colleagues to do this, and, try, and I'll share that. Hey, look, look, you can do this. It's surprising how few people want to actually do the cognitive work to sort of raise the bar to get the, and I'm talking about uh, ChatGPT 4.0, to get it to do the amount of work for you that it, that it can. Most people are pretty reluctant to, to go that direction. And the other thing is, is that invariably, the conversation is a search for something useful, and there's you know, many prompts and responses. Generally, the first prompt is the most in-depth, but uh, occasionally there'll be another long prompt in there. But but primarily after that, it's steering. 
and like trying to trying to find, like you said, it's all a vector space, trying to find that spot in the vector space where it's actually able to access uh, the the knowledge and um, you know to be honest, the type of judgment that I, that I want it to. And the other thing is that it's actually really useful when it makes a mistake. Yes. If you get disappointed when it makes a mistake, it's like, no, that's within the context of the prompt that you're doing. The mistake is actually a teachable moment. And that will help you get there faster. The thing is, all this stuff that I'm talking about, it's like, you know, I, I've been a software architect for or technical architect in various areas for like decades, I suppose. And before that, I was a technical manager. So all I have to do is like switch on my architect and technical manager that hat and just act like it knows what it's doing. Yeah. And then what I'm giving that comes back to me with like all of the knowledge of anything the model was ever trained on added. <laughs> so what's fascinating about your description of that is how much it's like my practice of working with startup founders and you know trying to get as much context as we can to begin the conversation and then exploring for a place where we can mutually solve a problem. That's one part that's really interesting, and that's obviously coming out of your technical management background. The other part is that you're using the language model as an augmentation to your emotional reactions to things. When you talk about that disappointment, that's your embodied intuition about how the system should behave and what the answers should be. And that's what I see the AI is missing. It doesn't have that physical, visceral reaction to a wrong answer. Yeah. It sort of doesn't know the difference between right and wrong the way right. that we do. Right, it doesn't know anything. It no. just knows which words connect to other words. Well, I think it's more than that. I think it's fair to say it, it really does know what words mean, mm-hmm. and, and possibly in a deeper sense than we do. You know, the, the fact that it's this very deep multilayer model, if you just think about the mathematics of it, like, that's about as close as I could get to a proof that words mean something. I mean, to me, that's one of the most encouraging things about LLMs is like this, you know, not long after most people to learn to read, you just like feeling like words are magical, and you like think about the history of like you know there's like words and books and these things, and they go back thousands of years. And LLMs sort of confirm all of our most like fanciful and positive like suspicions about words that wow they actually are magic. They actually do mean something, even by themselves. Even if you leave us out, they actually mean something. So. I love that aspect of of working with the LLMs because it's uh it's very reinforcing that 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 language is not just this like simple mechanism for people to communicate that's all relative based on the situation. You say, oh no, there's there is an absolute meaning that it. it's it, helpful. It's a sophisticated model for understanding the world, just like mathematics is. Exactly, exactly. Yes, and I think there comes that point for every avid reader where you've grown up in a world of books and then you read something like uh, Samuel R. Delaney and he he points to a world beyond what can be described by words. And suddenly you're aware of the air on your skin and the scenery rushing past you in the bus, and you realize there's a huge amount of reality that can't be captured in words. And that's kind of what I'm trying to oh, that, get to with the physical intuition. We we learn from our experience, from from the times we survived and the times we were in peril, and, and that builds our embodied expertise. And that's what we're bringing to this interaction. Oh, it, it, exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like not just us as like, you know, humans and the creators of LLMs, but any animal in the world has that connection to the Wiley world. The guide dog. Yeah, it, right. Or, 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 you know, things that are super far away from us in the evolutionary tree, like a, an octopus. Like yep. the, and, and 
the commonality between us and an octopus is amazing, like separated by like a half a billion years of evolution. Convergent and, evolution with the eyes. Their eyes are completely right. different from ours, but they yeah. work the same way. Right, and, and, and their brain is like, you know, part of it is in their feet and part of it is in their, you know, near their eye. One of the most moving experiences of my life, not to derail, yeah. but was getting to the Monterey Bay Aquarium right when it opened, when the Pacific giant octopus is really interactive and trailing my fingers along the glass and having the octopus trail his tentacles along the glass. Yeah. And that moment of communication was astonishing. Right. It, it's, it, it is stunning. And uh, honestly, I, don't, I think most of us that are in the sort of AI business now didn't really expect this to happen during our lifetimes. And now... It's like we're meeting the octopus, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, and uh, this only kind of happens once, you know, uh, so it's uh, it's quite once a moment. Once in a generation, hence the name of the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. A segue that isn't really a, a, a change of direction. How do you see these kinds of generative AI language models being harnessed in games? Are we going to see much more intelligent non-player characters? And what will that do to games as empathy engines? Yeah, well... I mean, you already see them being used in games, but I haven't seen a game where they don't fall flat yet. Right. And I think really the issue of personality and uh, a, a word I like in this category is rapport. The yes. concepts of how, how do you actually build a rapport? Well, you build a rapport as soon as you have a conversation with someone, and it, you know, but rapport built over a like, series of days and like years, it gets incredibly powerful. Now, in a game, you, you don't need that long-term rapport. But you do need the type of rapport that can come in moments. And uh, rapport is a very difficult cognitive task. And it's not something that's just sort of coded in to, like, it's not something you get for free with an LLM. The architectural work that I'm doing with Bamboo AI is very focused on uh, what can you do with the tools that we have available now to build rapport. Now, our goal there is not to build a game. It's just uh, it, it's, it's an AI companion and, like, you know, potentially like anything that's useful about an AI companion, which is still sort of everybody's exploring that space. With a game, I think before AI gets really good in an entertainment uh, environment, there will have to be models that can build a rapport. That's not something that's built into chat GPT right now. Uh, like, uh, not really. That's fascinating. So what are the elements of rapport? I think you have to have an authentic interest, potentially, in the person that you're talking to. You have to uh, learn things about them. Yeah, I would think maintaining state in a conversation would be a, a really key piece. It, it's helpful. With AI, rapport is a constrained problem that is difficult. We, there's solutions to it. And like, imagine you build a rapport with a pen pal. Yeah. It takes a while. You know, it's a lot of different ex exchanges. But after a while, you know, like you, you, you engage your imagination and if the other person is engaging their imagination and if you're exchanging messages in a reasonable way, you really can build a rapport. But it's a lot more effort than it is when you're actually in a conversation with someone and you get all the experience of being in the world. The rich feedback of body right. language yeah. and expression and gesture. So I, I think that we, you know, we, we, we sort of know how to do it, but we also know that in the world of words alone, it's not very easy. Right. And, and honestly, like, I think only a few probably only a few people touching AI are really thinking very seriously about that problem yet because there's so many different problems to be solved. It's just, I, I think that one's important for companionability. I, I think that's actually going to be a super important application. And another literary precedent that comes up again and again is people talking about 
Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age and The Young Lady's Illustrated Companion. I don't know if you've read it, but, oh, yeah. but, but right. that idea of a very long-term relationship with an entity that's trying to make you your best self, that's really compelling and attractive. I, I love that book. Uh, years ago, I gave my copy of it to um, my friend Andrew, who's the, the chief technologist at, at Bamboo. Yeah, we talked about it a lot. And talking about what we wanted to accomplish with things like rapport and companion uh, companion AI, uh, our dream is really like the, the book in the diamond age. So, like, that's, that's, that's what we want to get to. And, uh, and what's funny is that the cognitive abilities, they're almost practically there. Yeah. But the rapport is not, and it takes, I think, quite a bit of understanding to get there. Are you worried at all about the risks of using these very large closed-source commercial LLMs where they're effectively black boxes and we don't know a lot about their inputs or their internal mechanism? You know, I I gave that one some thought because you gave me the questions <laughs> last night. And I have to say, honestly, at least with respect to you know OpenAI, and I use their offerings more than others, uh, I'm not too worried about uh, you know other models that I've worked with or Llama 2. I'm, I'm not worried about that one really either. I can imagine commercial offerings where I would not want to talk to it. You know, I mean, anything you commit to writing on the World Wide Web exactly. <laughs> is I mean, like the, you have to be careful The horse has about. kind of left the stable at this point. It's already ingested all of our blogs. Those are secrets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when you are pair programming, pair architecting with, with ChatGPT, how do you handle hallucinations? Do you have an opinion on the fine-tuning to retrieval augmented generation spectrum? Okay, well, I'll separate those out. The uh, hallucinations, I mean, I definitely can, you know, of course, you can you can make a hallucinate. But when I'm pair programmed with it, part of my job is to keep it from hallucinating. You right. know? So it's like, because I, I know that's completely not useful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I, I want it to work with me in a useful way during a session. And a way to get it to hallucinate is to uh, use language that encourages it to engage in wishful thinking. Because what we call hallucinations, is, it's fair to say it's, it's mostly wishful thinking. It's yeah. like jumping to conclusions without understanding. And, it's what I did for the first half of my career. Right, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, right. It's, it's what people do all the time. So, like I said, like, you know... Uh, Software architect for decades, it's like, I know about hallucinations because it's been part of my job to talk with programmers who are having them all day long. Yeah, we so. can build that in three months. No worries. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just give me three <laughs> mythical man months. <laughs> so, so, you know, honestly, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of them, but they're not in any way an impediment. I know that for, you know, somebody who maybe didn't have the same set of expectations as me, who wanted to view these as some immediate source of truth is, you know, it would be a problem. But, you have to think of these as a as a cognitive tool, you know, uh, not something to follow. It's not an oracle; it's a pencil. <laughs> well, it, it's like a talking pencil that's like really charming. <laughs> uh, so I was also thinking about the fine tuning versus uh, right. versus prompt engineering. Yeah. Where, like prompt engineering is probably the the low class name for. Uh, it's uh, just what we were saying three months ago. We call it rag now. We call it rag. Okay, got it. <laughs> I come down pretty heavily on the side of uh, fine-tuning. Fine-tuning is not easy. Uh, it's very time-consuming. It is the deep dive. It's uh, very energy-intensive. and yeah. Right. And so if you're looking to get a result in, a, in days or even a few weeks, it's not the direction to go. But if you get the knack for what it is really doing uh, and you're willing to invest the time into it, that's 
where you will really be able to engage the cognitive capabilities of a model. Yeah. You use prompt engineering uh, when you want to sort of hit it over the head and uh, make sure that it's not going to go the wrong direction there. But if you want it to truly explore the solution space, uh, the what's in the prompt, it's interesting. I, I, I'm just going to do an analogy with like human cognition here. What's in the prompt is like the, the last thing you gave somebody to read. Right. And they haven't slept on it. They don't truly understand it. They haven't compared it to other things yet. It might have made a big impression, and they might even pair it things back. But they won't be able to analyze it and really engage that information. And, of course, our entire educational establishment and universities are all based on the, the fact that we actually really do know this is true. You, yes. You, you, you yeah. can't just, like, ask somebody to read the book. You know, like, there has to be, like, a few days <laughs> before that knowledge really gets in there. People always ask me why I studied English at university. This is why. It takes a <laughs> while to understand what a book is actually saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the, the thing is, fine-tuning is not, you know, Fundamentally, it's the same algorithm as building the base model to begin with. So you're you're able to access you know every capability that's down there. So I'm a huge fan, but you need to have patience. And I feel like the the companies that are operating well in this space, you know, OpenAI is obviously like you know more of their staff is dedicated to fine tuning by far than to base models or just uh, you know other forms of research now. And, and it's a probably a good set of decisions in their part to direct it that way. Yeah, it's interesting and a little challenging looking at it in, with investor eyes and realizing what a huge advantage the incumbents have in this space because they have access to GPUs and power. Do you think there are, I mean, obviously you're involved with Bamboo, so you do think there are opportunities for startups? There are. I mean, at this point, you know, you do have to, um, the, the, the easy leverage thing is to sort of align yourself with like, you know, a particular you know, model and sort of invest in that one. So, you know, a, a, a startup right now, like, uh, might say, okay, do I want to, uh, you know, work with, you know, OpenAI and start with a highly sophisticated set of fine-tuning, which gives me a great starting point, or do I want to sort of do the heavy lift myself with, let's say, Llama 2, which evidence says is that there's a lot of fundamental capability there. And with probably many months of engineering work going into the fine-tuning, you could probably get it there. I spent a lot of time analyzing that from different angles. And I think what I'd say now is if you if you want to have something that you can get something done in a few weeks, starting with an already fine-tuned model is good. And it does give an incumbents uh, a big advantage. Uh, but there's nothing about the math of this that makes incumbents see a huge long-term uh, thing. It's just, uh, and to some extent, you know, the, the companies that have an advantage in here is it's because they've they've done good work and there's some goodwill involved in it and trying to to get it out there. Uh, because all this stuff could be really broken and really bad if you're not careful. <laughs> so. Mark, you're one of the most well-informed people about this space that I talk to. What are some of your sources of data? What do you watch to, to keep abreast? Oh, Wow. I'll occasionally watch a YouTube video from somebody who's an important researcher. And uh, in terms of just sort of background for this, like, you know, I'll always go back to hugging face and yeah. just kind of get the foundational stuff. I'm like, you know, you know what, what do I need to, to do to get this stuff working? But we're such early days with this that it's so easy to do things your own, like, <laughs> on, like hands-on. And like, so some of the opinions I'm talking about, yeah, I've developed are basically just me doing things directly or with 
colleagues that are doing it directly. And just like, it's been, you know, it's been an exciting year. Yeah. And, uh, and we're just immersed in all this information. And th this idea of like, what do I watch or how do you do it? It sort of like also rhymes with the, with the issue of like fine tuning versus, versus prompt engineering. Right. Uh, that, uh, you know, watching a YouTube video or reading an article is like that, well, you just got that into your prompt. But, uh, but just actually doing this and living it for a while, you fine-tuned yourself, and that's, right. that's better. <laughs> right, that's a, that's a good insight. I'm going to make you god-emperor of the world for the next five years. Everything's going to go as you hope it will around AI. What does the world look like? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to think about that because a lot of my thoughts about that are as what type of impression does this make in the generation that's coming up now? You know, the people that are in university now will be out in the world five years from now. And, uh, you know, uh, you know for, I've been working in the industry through a lot of different transitions. And, uh, and one thing I realized is that, wow, like one of the most important things you do is you, you sort of, you build a world, you build an intellectual structure for the people that are coming in. I would like to see the generation of people that are sort of entering their most productive phase in five years really deeply understand AI as a tool. I, I'd like them, to be honest, I'd like them to all have like relatively equitable or equal access to it. I'd like it to not be something that's reserved for, for a few people. And I'd like to see it being used as a tool, uh, not just for technical, like uh, software developer types, but to, to grow into a cognitive assistance for people in all sorts of fields, like including like, you know, hey, bicycle repair and carpentry. Like, like it, it can help everywhere. Yeah. I just mentioned those two because I, I like both of those. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like bike repair of carpentry? They could be. Is that a good answer? Did I? It's a great answer. Okay. It's a great answer. The no. democratization piece is incredibly important to me. The industry has been talking so long about you know getting from five to fifty to five hundred million programmers. This really feels like you know you could legitimately bring on half a billion people and have them create applications with this technology in a way that we've never really been able to do before. Oh, it's true. I mean, I, in some ways, my job has gotten like way, way easier in the last year since I started using ChatGPT for, for a lot of cognitive tasks. It, it helps me to context switch really quickly. Now, being the type of person I am, I've just sort of upped the ante and I've accelerated <laughs> the rate of work. You've got, what, two, three full-time jobs now? <laughs> 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 well, I only have one job, but I'm advisor to a lot of people. <laughs> we know what that means. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think that my just sort of day-to-day -day productivity on like the kind of technical tasks that are sometimes frustrating and time-consuming, it might have tripled or more just in the last year because, um, you know, getting stuck on something where like, oh God, I'm going to have to read a manual for four hours and then I'm going to have to worry about whether there were errors in the manual. Then I'm going to have to read the code to make sure to, to, in order to reconcile what the errors were in the documentation. And then I'm going to try all these things. I'm going to test it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, anything that could short circuit that process is just a godsend. And that that's, you know, hopefully everybody's there in five years and just doing that. But Honestly, I think there's probably more to it than that. I think there's going to be a transformation in intellectual work, which is really huge in, in foundational ways that I probably can't anticipate five years before they happen. I think for a long time, we've glorified a certain amount of toil in intellectual work and we've you know, given accolades to people who can write a dissertation or a white paper or a long form piece of you know, intellectual reasoning. 
I think that suddenly got massively devalued in really interesting ways. And that may give an advantage to people who can think quickly and think on their feet and adapt very quickly. I don't know. that. That's actually really interesting. And uh, the, what's so interesting, this is, this is not something that's fundamental to intellectual work, but it's a human behavioral thing that we, we use cognitive tasks as a gatekeeping yes. devices. Really forward-thinking educators have started to realize that, you know, <laughs> even more over the last you know, generation or so than before. But there are still some true believers in gatekeeping. Yeah. And uh, you'll really see it in the interview cycles for like a lot of big companies, which is like, you know, and, you know, and, and the thing is, is that now that gatekeeping, which was always really questionable in terms of its value, is just demonstrably a waste of time. I think there are some things that do need to be gatekept, but I think proving how smart you are is, is probably not one of them. <laughs> yeah. If you had a colony ship, Setting sail for the stars, heading to, to Proxima Centauri, what would you call it? Well, naming things, one of the hard problems in computer science. <laughs> okay, I, I'm not going to fix on one name, but I, I think I'd, I'd name it after a tree, most likely. because like, trees. Yeah, if, if we were ever able to send something to another star system or to another planet, like if, if, if you were able to make a tree grow someplace, it's like, wow. Like that's, to me, trees are in charge of running the planet. We just haven't, as humans recognized that. But, uh, you know, we're starting to put it together that, hey, you know, maybe it wouldn't rain at all without trees. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm thinking that, uh, yeah, trees are where I would go with the naming. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I went to Muir Woods and met the old growth forest there and realized we are mayflies to them. We appear and disappear in the blink of an eye to a tree. We are so small and so young. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they don't necessarily do what we think of as cognitive tasks, but they process a lot of information. And fundamentally, they're responsible for the planet functioning. <laughs> so, I cannot think of a better name for a generation ship. Mark, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest or if you know someone awesome I should interview, hook up with us online. We're available where all fine social medias are sold. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.